1: Welcome back to Such Sights to Show, a sometimes Clive Barker, sometimes Hellraiser podcast. I am Joe Lipsit, and I'm joined, as always, by Mr. Brian Christopher. Hi, Brian. Hi, Joe. I am excited
0: today. I like. I know. I feel like the last couple, I've had to have some kind of caveat about like my old man point of view mm-hmm. when it comes to like Hellraiser properties and how they're adapted. Right. Uh, I think today is going to be a a nice change of pace for the listeners and uh, and my my approach and my my take on the material. Ooh, does this mean we're not getting grumpy, Brian, for this recording? I actually think we're not going to get grumpy, Brian. So yeah,
1: that's that's pretty amazing, right? <laughs> it's, it's been a while. Indeed, yeah. And folks, we are back on our books, not our book-to-film adaptation. Brian, what are we talking about today? We are talking about Paul
0: Kane's 2016 Sherlock Holmes Hellraiser crossover, Sherlock Holmes and the Servants of Hell.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. This is an interesting one. So this was actually a recommendation from folks when we first started doing these and we were saying, you know, we're going to try to read some of these lesser known hellraiser properties. Somebody literally tagged us and said, "Would love if you talked about this and a couple of other things which we're still on uh we're still on the lookout for. I had never even heard of this.
0: I I had seen this one on bookshelves for a while. This this made okay. the rounds at like big chain bookstores like Barnes and Noble and things like that. I remember seeing them and I remember going like, I don't know about that. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, we're, (laughs) we're, we're taking the peanut butter. We're combining it with the chocolate. Is that gonna, is that gonna fuck up both the peanut butter and the chocolate in this case? Cause you know, it's when you see something like that, you're looking at essentially uh, glorified fan fiction. Right. And so sometimes that can be awesome. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. it, is that going to be the case here? And also, I, I won't, I won't lie. It kind of threw me off that this, it's a big book. It's like right. two hundred and eighty pages. So I'm just like, how are you? Like most Sherlock Holmes stories are short stories. So mm-hmm. how are you taking something that like originally filled short stories, or conversely filled like a novella? Mm-hmm. And turning that into 280 pages, so I just I didn't trust it, so I was I was right. a little I was a little wary <laughs> coming into to reading this one, but I figured, you know, if I'm going to read it, doing it in this context is the best way to do that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it always helps to have somebody that you can kind of ping pong off of, just in case it's not really your bag. Mm-hmm. But I distinctly remember when I was editing our episode on the Midnight Meat Train, we closed that out saying, "Okay, and we're finally going to do this thing." oh god i don't know (laughs) we
0: we were just at the the very top of the 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 first hill on the roller coaster like do we really want to go down
1: i guess we don't have a choice
0: we're doing it now we're committing so yeah we uh we did it
1: yeah okay so what is this about in case people have not read it because i'm gathering there's probably more people like me who maybe knew this existed but haven't actually picked it up sure so I'm going to go with
0: the Goodreads synopsis
1: because they've
0: put it together far better than I could, just off the top of my head. Late 1895, and Sherlock Holmes and his faithful companion, Dr. John Watson, are called upon to investigate a missing persons case. Uh, On the face of it, this seems like a mystery that Holmes might relish, as the person in question vanished from a locked room. But this is just the start of an investigation that will draw the pair into contact with a shadowy organization talked about in Whispers, known only as the Order of the Gash
1: hmm And that is definitely where the book begins. You know, this is written like a traditional Sherlock Holmes story where Watson is the one who is capturing the details of the case after the fact. He's writing this like it's a bit of a diary entry that he's planning not to let anyone read, which I don't entirely understand that as a creative choice. Like, why not just say, no, this is a thing, and here, you're going to read it, because... That's what we're doing.
0: (laughs) I think I kind of get where he's getting with that. It gives a sense of stakes and danger that maybe aren't there. If Watson is just like, yeah, I'm just putting this out to the world. It, It seems like if he's just doing that as like, you know, this is another one of the home stories that I'm mm-hmm. putting out for the public. I don't know. I think the idea that he's saying, like, I'm writing this down because that's what I do, but I, I don't feel comfortable sharing this with people. Right. It, it had me wondering, like, oh, man, how is this going to pan out? Like, are people going to be okay? I don't know. Mm. So, yeah, for me as a reader, that, that kind of worked to up the level of – um, I don't know if intensity is the right word, but uh, right. I, I guess impending dread, you know, because we we, okay. we we know how interactions with the set of bytes go from our own interactions with with previous mm-hmm. materials. So um, for me, it just, it was that a subtle nod that like this isn't your run of the mill case for, for right. Watson or for Holmes.
1: Yeah. Cause I mean, even before we get into the story proper quote unquote, we're also acknowledging Sherlock Holmes is dead.
0: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. and yeah i i like the way kane he he's clearly good at building tension and and building dread and mm-hmm. you know i think that does go to obviously he's he's done a lot of fiction work uh but he's also just a fan of the genre like he started right. out as a horror journalist you know he's he's got contributions at fangoria sfx rumorg um and he's also clearly a student of the Hellraiser films, he actually wrote a whole <laughs> book, The Hellraiser Films and Their Legacy. So this is someone right. who knows the ins and outs of the the Hellraiser universe. Um, and I think you know this this goes back to that idea of the the usual get off my lawn approach that I have about mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. handling my precious Hellraiser universe. But this is, <laughs> I, I, I think, Kane is someone who like not only knows the nuts and bolts of it, but I think he understands you know what makes. The Hellraiser universe interesting. Now, there are going to mm-hmm. be a couple of those elements that we talk about that I think are lacking. But right. given the fact that this is within the the Sherlock Holmes universe, I think the decisions he makes in terms of the, the kinds of topics he leaves out, I think makes sense.
1: Right. And I feel like we ventured into this territory a little bit when we talked about the novella The Toll. And even Ugh. though that one was based on a story by Clive Barker, and it seemed as though it was tapping into an awareness or an understanding of how the Hellraiser universe worked. We weren't a fan of that story because it wasn't, it didn't feel like it was actually doing its own thing. It felt like it was just giving us little morsels of things that we would expect. Whereas I would argue that Kane has a better grasp of both how to mix Sherlock Holmes with Hellraiser, how to do a homage without feeling like you're just aping somebody who has already done it better. Mm-hmm. And I think telling an original story that actually satisfies, like, as you said, this is a full length novel, it's relatively lengthy. But I think it also justifies that length by telling a complete story in a satisfying way.
0: Yeah, it, it you know, the, the complaint that we had, or that I that I had about the toll was that, as a novella, it was either too long and should have been a mm-hmm. short story or not nearly long enough and should have been a longer book yes and, and this shows where you could have taken it to a longer story and really fleshed things out and made things more satisfying
2: Hmm.
1: okay so let's lay our cards on the table brian did you enjoy this book would you recommend it I really, really did. I really did. Like, and it was kind of funny, too,
0: because we went into this episode both admitting that, like, our brains have been rather squishy at the end of 2022 <laughs> and beginning of so 2022. So um, So, like, reading – that was the other thing, like, again, cards on the table. The idea of reading a 280-page book was just like, oh, Christ. I don't mm-hmm. know if I can do it. Um, But, like, I found when I was reading this, like, it took me a little to get started. Right. Uh, which, which, honestly, is also another point in its favor for, like, the Sherlock Holmes universe because that's always kind of the way I – get with Sherlock Holmes stories, like, oh, it's okay. like, okay, we got to deal with Watson doing his mm-hmm. Watson thing at the beginning, but eventually we're going to get into the meeting and it's going to be good. Right. Um, and yeah. so that that's kind of what happened here. Once I got into the rhythm of it and it kind of like, I got into the, uh, the flow, like I started devouring this thing and going through mm-hmm. it very, very quickly. Now, for me, very quickly, it's like week, week and a half. I didn't do it like all in one sitting, as I know you know <laughs> yeah. some people are more capable of. But for me, you know, it, it kind of got me back into the, the the rhythm that I like to be when I'm reading uh, a longer book. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I really like this. I, th- I think Kane did a great job. And, you know, obviously, we'll talk more in detail about how he did that great job. But just initial thoughts are this is a really good adaptation of a Hellraiser story.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I had a similar experience. So I think I got started on it a little earlier than you and I messaged you to say, Ooh, like, I think it's pretty good, but I'm having a bit of difficulty getting into it. I'm going to attribute that a bit more to the squishy brain mm-hmm. than to the actual <laughs> writing. Because once I did manage to just kind of sit down, immerse myself in this world, this is a page turner. Like, it's not an airplane book. hmm. But like once you you can get your head into the story, it's really quite a page turner. Like I started to consume this in, you know, 50, 70 page bursts at a time, particularly in the back half of the story where everything is just going down. Like the initial investigation where we're interrogating suspects, we're going over here, Watson's sojourn over to France to look into the Malahide Clinic. It's good stuff, but it felt at times just a little bit choppy to me where i was like okay that seems like a place i can put the book down for the day the back half when hell is literally at war with itself was all like i can't eat this up fast enough
0: yeah no i 100 percent agreed like i would say the first third of the book is probably where i struggled the most just because it was a little dry it was a mm-hmm. little bit like okay I get what we're setting up here. Uh, we can probably speed up a little bit. But right. um, it, it never got to the point where it just completely overstayed its welcome, you know, mm-hmm. obviously because I kept reading it. Um, and it was, <laughs> it, sure. it, it, it was also never a thing where it was like the only reason that I'm like – I never got to the point where I'm like I'm only reading this because I need to do it for the podcast. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was always a thing where it's like, eh, this is stretching a little long, but I'm still intrigued. And, you know, like yep. I'm still along for the ride.
1: Yeah, contrast that with our experiences with The Scarlet Gospel where there were times mm. I thought, you know what? I feel like I'm only doing this because Brian and I agreed we were going to have a yeah. conversation. Yeah. Yeah.
0: The like the closest thing we have to a contractual obligation was <laughs> was the feeling that we had reading some like with both with both Scarlet Gospels and The Toll. There were definitely moments where it's like Joe, you better appreciate this, man. I'm... <laughs> it's all for the listeners, Brian. They,
1: they demand it of us.
0: Yeah, but you're the only one I get the direct feedback back at the okay, in, okay. in the moment. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. No, sure, I, blame me. I put blame it all on your, your shoulders. The stuff, yeah,
2: yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is it fair? Or no. Am I going to keep doing it? Absolutely. Absolutely, uh... <laughs> yeah. Okay, so it sounds like you actually have a reasonable amount of awareness of what Sherlock Holmes is like. Is it fair to say that you've read a couple of the books by Conan Doyle?
0: I've definitely read a few of his stories. Um, the mainly the short stories. I think I did The Hound of the Baskervilles enough mm-hmm. to know that like I would by no means call myself an expert. Um, right. but I do know like the broad strokes about kind of what makes the Sherlock Holmes universe tick, mm-hmm. you know. And it's that uh that dynamic between Watson and Holmes is a yes. huge part of it. Presenting it as a, you know, a story written by Holmes or sorry, by Watson talking about uh, Holmes and kind of the uh, it's that that blend of like hero worship and (laughs) like utter (laughs) irritation and annoyance by all the like crappy things that that Sherlock Holmes does.
1: Yes, as all queer, baity couples are written mm-hmm. or, yes. uh, does. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you know, that,
0: that old married couple energy mm-hmm. that they have. Um, and I think that's put to, to really good use here because yes. it's, you know, the, the, a lot of that care and admiration that might be kind of bubbling under the surface and a lot of the more run of the mill stories really kind of comes out more in the forefront when you realize that, you know, when, when shit hits the fan and they realize they're literally in hell later on, spoiler alert, the, that affection I think becomes a lot more text rather than subtext. Now, not, mm-hmm. you know, we're not saying that they went there in terms of making, you know, Kane doesn't go there in terms of making Holmes and Watson, you know, an actual uh, queer couple. Well, not a couple. No. But the the affection that like, you know, when when these things are written back in late 1800s, like even hinting at like platonic male affection wasn't something that you could like really get too much into without mm-hmm. people like cocking their eyebrows. So the fact that they, they, they have to let down their emotional guard a lot more in this book, given the circumstances. So it's, it's interesting to see, like, there, there's a, a good reason to kind of bring together the Sherlock Holmes and Hellraiser universe, because I think it mm-hmm. makes both universes a little bit more rich and, like, um, contrast each other or, or complements each other in ways that I, I think makes for a really good story.
1: Yeah, it it absolutely makes sense that these would be missing person cases that Sherlock Holmes would be intrigued by because in the Hellraiser universe, the Cenobites can just walk into rooms, grab people and disappear without a trace. So it mm-hmm. becomes a typical, you know, closed locked room mystery. And then we go from there. I'll confess, I was a bit of a dum-dum when I cracked this open and I thought, I wonder if we're going to update this so that Sherlock Holmes and Watson are contemporary figures. Mm. And I feel like the book actually gets a lot of leeway out of setting this in the typical time frame of Holmes and Watson and then introducing homages and characters that we know from not just Hellraiser, but Hellbound, Hellraiser 2, as well as even things like, are honestly making reference to Hell on Earth as well as Bloodline in this book. Mm-hmm. And I was here for it. Absolutely, yeah. I, I love the idea that Kane made these references
0: without having to like beat you over the head with
1: them. Oh my God. I was so appreciative because I thought, oh, if this is just fan service, it's going to become unbearable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's,
0: you know, there are definitely times where he's just lifting certain elements wholesale Mm -hmm, and putting mm -hmm. them into the story, but he does it in a way that it's just not, it's not obnoxious. Like, I don't, in some ways, it's hard to describe the way he's able to pull it off because he's literally cribbing like entire shots or scenes Mm -hmm. from other from hellraiser movies and putting it into the story but for me he does it in a way that's just not it's not obnoxious and i don't know joe do you have any insight about like how he's able to pull that off
1: i was trying to think about why this works and i think it's in part because he clearly knows what he's doing but it's in service of the story i would argue except for one exception which i think you and i both don't really love which is the epilogue which is basically just a reframing of the original film with julia and frank and you're kind of like it's not that it's bad it's just that it doesn't need to be here yeah that to me was the most fan element of the book and it just stuck out like a sore thumb because the rest of it had been done so much better
0: yeah it's so utterly unnecessary Mm-hmm. Be- because he had already done such a great job at like weaving them in mm-hmm. those characters in throughout the rest of it it's just like why th- it's almost like this h- appendix at the end of the book and by appendix i don't mean like you know a book appendix like mm-hmm. i mean the body part the appendix we don't know why this is here <laughs> get this out of here yeah yeah and, and <laughs> i i also appreciate that like he did that as the epilogue so like if mm-hmm. you just stop reading and don't read the epilogue then like yep it's a perfectly satisfying thing with, you know, no real big issues. Um, Uh so
1: I don't know, like it's, it's, It's almost baffling that it's in there. I think the reason it is is because he's introduced the characters earlier. So, you know, Juliet and Lawrence Cotton have come to say, hey, we've moved into this house and our brother Francis has disappeared. He's one of the missing people. We make a string of connections to other folks, many of whom are original characters for the book. They obviously draw on, you know, familiar elements from the film so we can sort of situate them in context i think the reason they have to bring lawrence and juliet back in the epilogue is because they're such famous characters and it feels like we only introduced them but then we didn't pay off what happens with their story and then it leaves it open-ended enough that if you wanted to say oh we didn't actually get rid of the order of the gash. There's still the puzzle box out there. And as a result, the story will continue, which I appreciate, but I didn't need.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um and and <laughs> wedging them in at the end is is also like it clashes with how just like carefully he wove in familiar names into mm-hmm. the the rest of the story i think the one that really i appreciated the most and and really showed kind of how much of a nerd and i mean this in a <laughs> great way paul kane is is that when um when watson goes over to france and goes to the the institute mm-hmm. it's run by dr malahide yes. and you have to be an utter Hellraiser geek to get what he's doing there because Malahide is the name that Dr. Chenard originally had in the first version of the Hellbound Hellraiser 2 script. Um, right. Before they changed a lot of stuff in terms of like, um, you know, the the original script had uh, Larry Cotton was still mm-hmm. in play. They couldn't get yep. Andrew Robinson to play him. So like they had to make a bunch of changes. One of the changes that came out of that was for whatever reason, they changed the name from Malahide to Chouinard. And I right. remember I'm reading the story. I'm like, Malahide, why do I know that name? Mm-hmm. Like this is ringing a bell. And I'm like, oh my God, did he do what I think he did? And like, how? like a full-blown hellraiser geek i went like oh yeah like let, let, let's go check out the old let's check out the script and sure enough like yeah that was it was it was malhide from the original hellbound script
1: it's such a deep fucking cut but the yeah. hilarious thing is like even if he had it done it you know immediately the mm-hmm. minute that watson starts interacting with this character you're like it's chenard it's dr yeah. C- it's dr chenard he's up to no good <laughs> he's doing bad things like <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's,
0: and it's, I think pr- part of why it's so brilliant is that if you are a, you know, deep cut hellraiser nerd like like joe and i like you're you're gonna make that connection and it's gonna be mm-hmm. really satisfying but if you don't know that it's still a perfectly still good serviceable character like you it, it's not based off of you your enjoyment of that character isn't going to be based off of you knowing and making that connection it's just a little mm-hmm. something extra for you know for the 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 deep cut og fans
1: Well, and I I think that's the other reason why so many of these references do work. It's because if you get them, you get them. And if you don't, it's fine. The story just continues. I would say the only other time where I groaned inwardly a little bit was near the end of the book when we're in the middle of this epic battle between uh, the character who is not called pinhead Uh, (laughs) you know he's been dispatched we've got veronique as our lady cenobite who is assisting sherlock holmes who has basically become pinhead at this point Mm -hmm. uh and they're fighting off against moriarty who you know i i think is such an inspired villain like honestly when it's revealed to be moriarty as the person who's been pulling all the strings I got mad at myself for For not not knowing it was coming. Exactly. I'm just like, I'm such a stupid idiot. Why didn't I anticipate (laughs) this? And yet, it worked so well. But I will say the descriptions of the many Cenobites that have been created for Holmes' army, or vice versa for Moriarty's, I was just like, now I think we're just doing a weird, it's like a roll call of interesting (laughs) sounding Cenobites. And it was it was interesting, but I also felt like you're actually just slowing down the action by telling us your flight's of fancy about what you would like to see. It it felt a little too spec script. If we ever make another Hellraiser, you could consider some of these designs.
0: <laughs> I, uh, I'm conflicted because I definitely get what you're saying, but mm-hmm. as someone who got so tired of how unimaginative the yeah. later entries of the Hellraiser movies got in terms <laughs> of like – coming up with a theme and, like, translating what does that theme look like when it comes to, like, you know, the the scarification on these Cenobites. I kind of liked it. Oh, for sure, yeah. But I also 100% get that it's, like – yeah, it's it's like the mousketeers coming up, like you know these these fiendish <laughs> musketeers coming up, like you know I'm the the bathory Cenobite. I'm covered right. in blood, you know, uh, I'm the one is just like has an upside down cross for a face or something like that. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's it is a little bit of like Paul King going like, hey, check out all
1: these cool things that I came up with. Right. Out of curiosity, did you have one that stood out for you as being exceedingly memorable? Oh,
0: so. You know, for those who haven't read this yet, um, we get like this whole like battlefield full of Cenobites. Um, but before mm-hmm. that, we kind of have our original four that are yes. kind of introduced as like the the initial gang. Um, and it's it's interesting because this isn't the Hellraiser movie original gang. You don't get mm-hmm. Pinhead. You don't get Butterball. Yeah, you, you keep don't... waiting for Chatter or Butterball. Yeah, they're yeah. not there. Um, which I'm kind of wondering if was like. Maybe that's the the one place you run into a rights issue. Yeah, exactly. Because like the couple of references they do make to Pinhead throughout the story, he seems very careful to tiptoe around, not even using the word pin. In describing yeah. him. He alludes back to like this, this uh, I think like a voodoo doll or something like that, that had pins in it. And he's like, it looked a lot like that. So mm-hmm. like.
1: Only with glass. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so I I think they're kind of like, I think he might have been running into some some of the few rights issues that might have been there at this point. Right. Um, but the way he gets around that, like the the OG kind of gang of set bites are, you've got this guy that, in, it's basically instead of pins, he's got shards of glass coming out of his head mm-hmm you've got this guy that is basically like a walking pestilence so he's just got like all these infected boils and all that mm-hmm. good stuff uh you've got yeah the veronique which i actually don't remember him describing very well i i, I think she kind of went the same way as like the female Cetabite, where it's just yes. like her 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 distinguishing feature is that she's a woman uh, yeah she has a bodice and a dress and then she has whips Yes, that was that was a cool feature. I did like that, like the whole cat and like tails yeah. thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, I think the one that stood out for me though was like their their burly muscle instead of being like you know butterball the the mm-hmm. the, 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 the pudgy guy, they went with this kind of huge like muscular guy that literally just had a fist for a head. Yes, um, there was something very kind of like both menacing and silly about that. Mhm. And the way they kind of write that character playing out, he's almost kind of like like they have an actual hound, but mm-hmm. I feel like within the dynamic of that group, he is like their like their pet almost. Yeah. You know, he's like the loyal like the loyal muscle. Mm-hmm. Um and the fact that you keep thinking like he's been overtaken during the war and he keeps like coming back. I don't mm-hmm. know, there was something there was something kind of I don't want to say wholesome about it, oh, um, sure. but uh, yeah, it something that was just like, "Oh, that's nice." I'm glad he's okay. Fist, yeah. fist Head is fine.
1: Yeah, Fist was my favorite character as well, if only because it felt very outlandish, a little bit silly, but also incredibly visually evocative. Like I spent a lot of time envisioning this book as a movie mm. and how. It, much in the same way that we talked about Scarlet Gospels, you know, the scope of it is actually quite epic when we get into the last act. And yeah, Fist is just such a compelling character. I was imagining him crushing Moriarty Cenobites in this contained hallway in the Leviathan because we're more or less doing that version of hell again. Mm-hmm. So these long corridors that are kind of featureless, but then they get overwhelmed by low technological Cenobites and then Fist just crashing through a wall and, you know, almost like a rhinoceros smashing <laughs> opponents against the walls and stuff. It was really entertaining.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I also think the fact that like we have these Cenobites that we wind up Mm-hmm. In a way, rooting for I think goes back to a. It goes back to all the Boom comics, you know, where yes. um, you know we we have that uh, that hierarchy or, or that that idea that like being a Cenobite isn't necessarily equated to being evil, mm-hmm. which I think still goes back to the heart of uh, the Hellbound heart of right. you know these things aren't capital E evil creatures. They're not ones that you would want to come across in ninety nine percent of the time. Like they will. You will have a bad day if you run into these folks, but Mm -hmm. they are not – they're doing their thing. They are not necessarily like evil. And I think they do a good job at making that contrast by bringing in Moriarty, who is Mm -hmm. like the classic epitome of like, no, just an evil bastard. So that even within the confines of like this Leviathan version of hell, he is – a bad person, and so yeah. I, I like the way they set up that kind of dynamic uh, where these aren't the cenobites from hell on earth where it's mm-hmm. you know their existence is just you know they're they're classic like demons or you know uh, evil creatures from hell they're they're their own thing. Um, and while that's not going to be pleasant for most people, you know it's it's that that shades of gray that I think Clive mm-hmm. Barker loves to live in. So I think taking that spirit into this book was a really, really good decision.
1: Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. And I want to applaud you for referencing the Boom comics because I definitely felt like we were a little indebted to Mm -hmm. the Scarlet Gospels where we were doing Pinhead versus Lucifer. But more so, I was getting a lot of that comic trajectory where Harry Dumour becomes the new Hell Priest and it's waging war against other sects of Hell. Like, this felt like Cain... Was intimately familiar with a lot of those comics that we did that episode on. And I was really here for it because we talked about how compelling those stories were. And we lamented the fact that we hadn't really seen them explored in other Hellraiser properties.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's kind of going back to that discussion of like Kane incorporating the elements that I think he needed to for Mm -hmm. making this a Sherlock Holmes story. So I think there's some very subtle hints at. Queer elements in this, but I think by mm-hmm. and large, we're not really going down that road.
1: No. Sexuality is not really a huge thing here.
0: Yeah. Which I, you know, normally I, I think both you and I would usually rail against and be right. like, hey, come on, you're missing a big part of this. But I think as a Sherlock Holmes story, keeping that as like the deep down like subtext is very emblematic of Sherlock mm-hmm. Holmes stories. So yeah. I think doing that and really focusing more on the the world building and the hierarchy of hell in in this story, I think works better for, for what they're doing here. Mm-hmm. Now I do think if someone was going to do like erotic fan fiction that use this as a starting point, I think oh. there's a lot of places they could go, <laughs> especially it's when you there. have a character it called, <laughs> especially when you have a character called fist, like, yeah, there's going to be some places <laughs> you can go.
1: Yeah. It, it is interesting because I more so felt like female characters were being sexualized. Mm. You know, there's some talk about one of the men who disappeared as very much a J.P. Monroe from Hell on Earth, where he's got an illicit club where people go and they can engage in their vices. Oh, my God, Joe. I completely mm. missed that. I
0: a hundred like I got I, I'd say I got ninety five percent of the references, but I think that mm-hmm. might have hit my squishy brain where it was just like <laughs> the the Monroe connection I was not making. Oh God, I feel oh man, that's that one <laughs> stings. Shame. That shame. stings. Yeah,
1: don't look at me. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I was so surprised that we were legitimately bringing in references to some of the not later franchise films, but you know. You and I, we're not staunch defenders, but we will go to bat for films three and four in a Mm -hmm. way that a lot of people say, oh, well, you should just stop watching after you watch the first two. (laughs) And I was so appreciative of these little things. Like, again, if you don't pick up on it, it's fine because you can still get the crux of it. To me, that felt like another really good intermeshing of a Sherlock Holmes kind of character, right? Like Mm -hmm. Sherlock Holmes goes and he does the absinthe, circuit or he he does the the drug circuit the opium dens and yeah Yeah, the opium den thank you so it made sense that there would be something kind of like that but also within the world of sex work and In this particular case, I think it was fascinating that rather than going the sort of Orientalism route, Mm. we're saying, oh, it's somebody who's running a kind of underground sex club who is already dabbling in the more exotic lifestyles that would be the inciting incident or the instigator of bringing something like the lament configuration to the to the UK.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He does. He does a really good job at, again, like the, the blending of Hellraiser and Sherlock Holmes. Like, Mm -hmm. and I guess that's where he's so adept at it, where like in, in other stories we've read, it just seems like, well, we're sticking this here because it's a Hellraiser element. We need to put it here. He did such a great job at like, how does this make sense as a murder Mm -hmm. mystery? Yeah, and it goes back to, like, yeah, I missed the Monroe reference, but it worked perfectly well as just, like, an element of a Sherlock Holmes story. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's, you know, it's important here that he he clearly knows, like, I I don't know what his professional interactions, uh, quote unquote, would have been with the Sherlock Holmes universe. Like, I I haven't seen that he's written any other stories there or done any, like, journalistic work, but, like, it's clear, like, if you've read a few Sherlock Holmes stories, like, he also has. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, his 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 ability to to put those in that that's why it works. It's because it's it's to service of the story and not just highlighting like hey, I know Hellraiser movies like mm-hmm. it, it's it's not just, you know, the hey, remember this kind of thing. It's a how does this work in the service of of the story. I think the the only time I think there is a slight like hiccup not not even a hiccup because it still works for me. And I thought it was actually very endearing. Um, but when we find out uh, Henri's last name – because it's it's such it's just very it's a very cute wink at the quote-unquote camera when we find out that this this orderly that uh helps at malahide's institute um there's this whole sequence where watson gets captured by the bad guys he's tortured looks like he's done for and Mm -hmm. this orderly that he had befriended Henri helps him and on their way out he's like yes i believe i will go to america i've never seen america before Mm-hmm. and uh, also my last name is Damore and I'm just like <laughs> of of course of course it, it, it was another one of those like how did I not see that train coming
1: <laughs> right da, 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 da,
0: da. yeah and it's like it, it that's the one time where I felt like it really had no service to like it didn't yeah. make anything in the story better it was definitely like a hey you know this name but it was mm-hmm. like done in such a sweet way where it's just like okay and now I'm leaving like we, we're not going to belabor the point
1: right yeah it it could have been a character with a completely different name and it still would have been totally fine Mm -hmm. it felt like a cute little wink didn't need to be there Mm -hmm. Eh, it's fine yeah but it 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 worked for me because it didn't outstay it's welcome
0: he just okay yeah see what i did there and then he leaves
2: Mm -hmm.
1: well i'm curious do you have any other things that you want to address in the book
0: um yeah uh the the one thing in terms of I keep coming back to this idea of how well these two universes come together to do service mm-hmm. to like and complement one another. And the thing that I also really appreciated about Sherlock Holmes as being a really great character to explore the Hellraiser universe is that the timing that Kane uses is that this is um, post Reichenbach Falls Sherlock Holmes. And for those right. who who aren't familiar with uh, the the series, uh, there was a point at which. Arthur Conan Doyle didn't really want to write Sherlock Holmes stories anymore.
1: (laughs) I've graded a monster. How do I get rid of him
0: so I can write other stories? Exactly. So he killed him off. Um, There is this whole sequence where there's this showdown between Holmes and Moriarty uh, where Holmes realizes the only way that I win this is if I pull – A rabbit out of my hat, um, but I'm going to have to sacrifice myself to do it. He basically just Mm -hmm. pulls Moriarty over a railing and they both go tumbling down this like really tall waterfall and, you know, that would be their demise. Um, But, you know, the the fact that uh, uh, show business has always been show business, even when it comes Mm -hmm. to literary pieces, the demand for more Sherlock Holmes was just so loud and so great that Doyle had to bring him back. And so, you know, he wrote, you know, into the in. He basically kind of retconned the fact that uh, uh, Holmes didn't die. He he was able to survive <laughs> yes. his big fall. Moriarty did die, um, and so there were more stories. And it kind of like focuses on Holmes trying to uh, do away with uh, Moriarty's lieutenants. Uh, and we right. get you know hints to that here. They're in this story. Mm-hmm. But I like the fact that Holmes's obsession with this case it kind of goes back to him wondering, why did I not die? That should have mm-hmm. killed me. And yeah. it, it becomes this obsession with death and knowing, like figuring out like, why, why did the universe not take me at mm-hmm. that point? And so he got obsessed and, you know, what is Hellraiser about? If not people who are obsessed with things. Um, right. And I, I like that idea that he's, Someone who's kind of like a stark contrast to the type of people you would normally see in, mm-hmm. in a hellraiser story because he's not uh you know he's also a character that very much isn't uh concerned with matters of the flesh or right. or, or physical enjoyment um but right. they they found you know Kane finds that that niche that thing that's gonna nag at him and that's knowledge and that's you know uh, and and they make a very big point the people who bring him in like um this wasn't about you know, physical pleasure for you. This was a knowledge thing. And so – I think that works on like a macro level because I think it's like thematically really good. And it also gives you these really interesting moments where like he's having trouble figuring out the box and it drives him nuts because mm-hmm. he is – And it was actually kind of like surprising for me because I thought it was going to be a thing where he would pick up the box and like he's home. He so it's like it. instantly solves it. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that he had trouble with it I think was a really interesting twist and in a way that's believable. Yeah. And when he actually gets caught by the Cenobites, you know they they get into this whole like, you know they don't shy away from like he gets fucked up in oh, this book, yeah. um, and they don't shy away from it. But they also lean into the idea that he's very good at managing his pain and mm-hmm. kind of like I that did mind that over matter. Too. Yeah, and so like this is just a very interesting figure to put in the center of all this kind of madness. Um, so I think that's you know part of why this was so satisfying is that. On paper, or like when you first read, like they're really gonna cross over Hellraiser and Sherlock Holmes. How the hell is mm-hmm. that gonna work? Why? Yeah. You know, Kane shows why that works. And and I think he does a good job at at making like this isn't just a lark. This is something that he clearly thought about and and saw possibilities for how these two elements could come together to make something really interesting.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And as you were talking about the fact that this takes place after Holmes and Moriarty's fall, it actually once again brought me back to the Scarlet Gospels where Barker himself was trying to kill his darling because he was sick and fucking tired of Pinhead. So Mm -hmm. he wrote one last story to get rid of him. Yeah. And it's clear
0: in the Scarlet Gospels, that like it's written by someone who's like, I don't really have a love for this anymore. I'm just doing this because I want to be done with it. Mm-hmm. That is not the case with what Kane is doing here. No, it's, it's, it's done with such it's the a opposite, loving hand. In fact. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Just honestly, a very enjoyable read. If if nothing else now, I can say I'm really happy that we're doing this series and we decided to continue it. Cause initially, you know, as we said, we were gonna do three and done in anticipation of the new film. And then people said they wanted us to venture outside of our very narrow focus. Mm -hmm. And I can legitimately say, I'm really happy that I read this book and I never would have done it if not for this.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. That would have been one of those ones that I would have just kept right on by like, oh, that's an interesting gimmick. Interesting. Uh, Goodbye. I'm moving on. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So to actually have a chance to pick it up and turn out to be something that is such a good faith crossover Mm -hmm. that I think I enjoy this better than both. Obviously, I like it better than the Toll. Right. I would argue that I like this better than the Scarlet Gospels. So uh-huh. to say that I like a Hellraiser property more than two things that Clive Barker
1: himself was like deeply hand-in. involved with
0: yeah. is, is saying something, and I don't say lightly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, this was a good time. I was very happy. As was I. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, Brian, this isn't the end, as always, but before we tell people where we're going next, how can folks chat about Sherlock Holmes and the Servants of Hell with you? Uh,
0: best way is just to hit me up on Twitter, at Um, Interesting to see. Were there any Easter eggs that we missed that you mm. want to highlight, or uh, any thematic elements that maybe we, we didn't discuss, or were there things that didn't quite work for you that you want to get into? Uh, let us know. I'd, I'd love to talk about it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Books can hit me up at B, on my remote, and that's the letter B. And uh, we'll give a quick shout out to the Anatomy of a Screen Pod Squad Network for hosting the show. Thank you. Yay! As teased, Brian, the show rolls on, and I think it's time to go back to Mr. Barker himself. What do you say we dive into Volume 2 of Books of Blood next time? Let's do it. All right, so we're getting our short stories back on. I don't know if I know any of the stories in this one, so I'm excited.
0: Yeah, these won't be. I don't think these are going to be rereads for me either, so I think we're getting into uh new short story from Barker Territory for me. Uh, so, yeah, I'm I'm excited.
1: Cool, cool. All right. Well, folks, get your reading on, and yeah, hit us up if you read this book because I'm curious to know just what other people thought of it are are we completely off our rockers and enjoying this as much as we did i don't think so but you know what Mm -hmm. i'm happy to entertain other people's reading experiences i'm not (laughs) fair enough okay well um until books of blood volume two we can put a close on sherlock holmes and the servants of hell
2: Squad.